Good morning. Great to see you. As Pastor Tim said, my name is Mark Schuler. I'm the pastor of Adult Ministries here at Harvest, and uh, great to be with you today. And uh, thanks to Pastor Tim for the opportunity to preach uh, here in Matthew chapter 6. So let me just start with this. Let me ask you this question. How many of you saw the Academy Awards a few Sundays ago? A number of people? Yeah, a lot of us. Well, if you saw it, you know there was a bit of a mix-up at the end. So, so at the end, they have the final award, kind of the most prestigious award for that community there, uh, best picture of the year. And the presenters came out, and they called out uh, La La Land as winning the best picture of the year. So everybody comes up, and there's high fives, and there's acceptance speeches given, and everybody's excited. They're holding their little trophies, their little Oscar, and what happened was the producers kind of come out and stop all of it and say there was a big mistake that actually La La Land didn't win. Moonlight won. And so now the Moonlight people are coming up on stage and they're a little bit confused. Is this real? Are we really coming up? And then the people from La La Land are handing their awards over to the people from Moonlight. It was just, it was a confusing and crazy scene. And as I was watching um, that night, as I was watching the Oscars, I thought to myself, so these people are winning awards for what? For, for playing a part. They're, they're winning awards for pretending to be someone that they're not. That's what actors and actresses do. They act, right? And so they're, they're putting on a show. And so for, for this year, this was kind of the best of the best um, of, of those who were playing a part. Okay, let's make the turn now. The Pharisees in the Bible, they were the best of the best at playing a part. They, they were pretending to be someone that they really weren't. They were phonies. They were fakers. They weren't genuine. They weren't sincere. They, they were the best of the best at playing a part. Listen now, the Bible tells us in their giving and in their fasting and also in their prayer. They weren't genuine. It was all outward. It wasn't sincerity of heart. They were just faking it, putting on a show. And so Jesus is going to tell his disciples here in Matthew chapter 6 that that's not how it should be. That, that prayer should be real and authentic and genuine and from the heart. That prayer really should be worship before our God. So that's what we're going to look at today as we look at kind of this, this power formula, this pattern of prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples out of Matthew 6. So if you have your Bible, please turn there now to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 5 to 15 here today. So Matthew, our first gospel here, go to chapter 6. And as you're getting there, I just want to give you a little context here of Matthew 6 because we're kind of jumping right into the gospel and uh, what, we, what we find is we find ourselves in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6. And uh, Jesus was teaching his disciples uh, from a mountaintop or you could say a, a large hill. And this was maybe uh, the greatest sermon ever preached. This is our Lord and Savior uh, teaching, preaching to his disciples. And so the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we're going to be, comes in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And, and I just wrote this down. It highlights our absolute need for God and salvation in Christ. It teaches us 
that true righteousness is not just doing the right thing on the outside, it's being the right person on the inside. It's a, it's, again, it's about, it's about the heart. It's about our heart. It's about living a life that is pleasing and dedicated to God, free from hypocrisy. And so this is going to be, look at it this way as we dig into this. This is going to be a great teaching uh, by Jesus on prayer. We're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. But listen now, it's also a great time to examine our own heart. It's also a great time here to do kind of a spiritual inventory and to see, are we authentic? Are, are we genuine? Are we, are we being real in our walk with God and in our prayer life? Or listen now, are we just playing a part? Are, are we pretending to be something we're really not? And so let's look through this and ask God as we walk through it, God, God help me to see my own heart, right? That I, that I could, what? Follow Christ with all my heart. That I'd be all in for him. All right, so let's... Uh, let's start in verse 1. We're gonna, our verses are going to be 5 through 15, but I want to work our way into um, our section here. Matthew 6, uh, verse 1. Speaking to his disciples, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, he says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, verse 5, here we go. And when you pray, okay, here's his instruction now to them on prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you. Ask him. Let me stop there. Okay, so the instruction on prayer. Jesus turns now to prayer as he's teaching them in verse 5, and he says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for what they love. Right? They love. We say that. Love. Man, they love to stand. They love to stand in the synagogues and, and in the streets, they, that they would be praised by other, other people. Okay, so Jesus is teaching his disciples. Don't be like the hypocrites. And what do the hypocrites love to do? They, they love to pray in public. They love to pray in public. Now, it's not wrong to pray with other people around. The problem was they wanted to pray so they could be noticed by other people. All right? And so did, did they pray because they loved God? No. Did they pray because they thought God could somehow uh, intervene in this situation in the midst of their need and, and, and they're calling out for God's strength and power? No. Did they just pray to give heartfelt thanks to their creator? No. The Bible says they were praying because they wanted, they wanted other people to be in awe of them. They, they wanted to be seen by others. 
They were putting on a show. They were playing a part. They were pretending to be something they weren't. They were actors. They, they wanted everyone to see how, quotes now, how holy they were, how pious they were, how close they were to God. Take notice of me. Listen to me. This, this was just outward. It wasn't from the heart. It wasn't sincere. And so Jesus says to his disciples, listen now, don't, don't be like that. Don't be like that. They, they have their reward. They wanted to be seen. They got it. I owe them nothing. Verse 6. I'll get back to verse 6. We'll swing back to that. Let's go to verse 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. See how it says there in verse 7, and when you pray, and when you pray. That phrase is used in verse 5 and 6 and 7. So he says, and when you pray, verse 5, but when you pray, verse 6, and when you pray, verse 7. The emphasis here is on you and prayer. When you pray, right? Again, this is a self-examination here. We're examining our own hearts, not our, not our spouse or our brother or our kids. This is about us. When you pray. And so he says in verse 7, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do or as the pagans do. He's saying... Um, no, no empty words. No meaningless repetition, guys. No long, recited prayers that are just mindless mumbling before God, but it's divorced of any of your heart. Don't, don't do that. It's what the pagans did. They somehow thought uh, their God would hear them because of how long they prayed or, or they said something just the right way. We see that on Mount Carmel, right, with Elijah. They're calling out all day. And Jesus says, no, no. Don't be like that. Be authentic. Be genuine. Be real. He says, look, your Father in heaven knows what you need before you even ask him. Isn't that so comforting? God knows what we need. And so the idea here, look, it's not wrong to pray a request more than once to God. Jesus did that, prayed three times. Paul did too. The, the idea here, church, is genuineness, sincerity of heart. So, we all need to be examining our heart on this. I was thinking this week, sometimes it, it's easy, right? It's easy for us to fall into the trap of empty phrases to God, um, divorced of any heart before a mealtime, right? Or before bedtime, or before a meeting. It's like we're, we're just looking to complete it, check the box. We're just looking to complete it. We're not looking to meet God in it. And God says, don't, don't do that. He says instead, let's go back to verse 6, but when you pray, right, don't, don't do those other things, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus was not a forbidding public prayer when he says go into your room. It's not wrong, obviously, to do that. Um, his purpose here is to make a great contrast, though. He's contrasting what, right, the Pharisees did, the hypocrites did, the pagans did, and he's saying, he's dealing with motive here, church. He's dealing with their motive, and so he says, he says it like this, get alone and go to the most private place you can so you won't be tempted to show off. Get, get alone, 
Get alone with God. Get alone apart from distractions. And pour out your heart before God, not before men. Focus fully on God who knows what you need. Call out to him. Look, ultimately, the bottom line is this. Jesus is saying this. Our prayers are not to be offered to men, but to God. Our prayers are not to be offered to other people, but to God. We're to be authentic and genuine and real, free from hypocrisy. The idea is we, as we come in prayer, are worshiping God. We're looking to worship God. Listen now. Not have other people worship us. Boy, that's convicting. That we would be only about God, right? That I wouldn't be thinking all these other, I wonder how they're thinking about how I'm saying this and well, I hope Uncle Bob's listening to this prayer and just focused on God, getting alone free of distractions. I read a story uh, this week. Um, Lyndon Johnson's press secretary, uh, his name was Bill Moyers, and he was praying before a staff luncheon. And uh, as he was praying, President Johnson couldn't hear him. So he, he was going, speak up, Bill. Bill, I I can't hear you. Bill, speak up, please. And Bill Moyers quietly replies, I wasn't addressing you, Mr. President. Wherever you are, pray from the heart. Man, pray from the heart. Wherever you are, whenever you pray, check your heart. Make sure your prayer is offered to God, not to other people. And so Jesus now, as he deals with this hypocrisy and what the pagans were doing and the religious leaders, and he begins to teach them, you know, don't, don't do that, uh, be sincere. Now he rolls right into this, this model for prayer, okay? He rolls into this model here, the Lord's Prayer. And so go ahead and get to point number two now in your notes. Um, point number two. Uh, is this, right? We had get alone without distractions. Now get real as you pray. Get real as you pray. And, and we're going to hit five sub-points here as we walk uh, the Lord's teaching here on prayer. So let me just read to you verse 9. So he says, don't, don't do all that. But instead he says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We take this one verse at a time. And so Jesus says here, pray then like this. Now, he's not saying pray exactly this. He's not saying that um, every time you pray, I want you just to recite the Lord's Prayer. He's saying pray then like this, verse 9. He's teaching uh, the disciples and us to pray like Jesus prayed, not merely what Jesus prayed. Pray then like this. So he's teaching us to pray like Jesus prayed, not not merely what he prayed. And so he teaches them this this kind of this power formula here. And uh, we're going to see that in the remaining verses as we walk here, 9 through 15, that this is a powerful way to pray. All right? Not just duplicating words, but a powerful pattern. A pattern that begins and ends with the worship of our God. We come and we worship him, we seek his kingdom interests, and we even come to him for our needs, knowing that he is God. So let's jump into this. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Okay, so uh, letter A there is worship him. That's what we're going to be talking about here, worship him. The first thing that sticks out to me as Jesus addresses his disciples is, is he tells us and he tells them that, that we can address God as, listen now, our Father. We can address God as our Father, our Father in heaven. And, and so we're not to pray to angels, we're not to pray to Mary, we're not to pray to living people, we're not to pray to dead people. We are to pray to our Father who is in heaven. We pray to God who through faith in Jesus Christ is our Father. I'm a son of the Most High God. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High God. He is our Father. God is, this is an intimate and personable God. Right? This is an expression here of affection, that God is personable, that he is intimate, that he is loving, that he is close. In fact, you probably know as you read through the Gospels, you know, Jesus uh, called out to God as his Father uh, 70 times in the New Testament. 70 times he prays and he calls him Father. We know Paul in Romans 8.15 says that we can call um, God, our, our Abba Father, that mean, that's a close expression of affection, meaning our Daddy. We call out to Him, our, our Dad, our Daddy, our Father in Heaven. It's an expression of affection. I was thinking about it with my kids, right? Like, I wouldn't want my kids to come up to me and be like, Yes, sir, yes, sir, love you, sir. Yes, sir, may I speak, sir? No, sir, love you, sir. Like, I, I don't want them to talk like that, right? I, I, want, I want them to see me as a loving Father who's close to them, who couldn't love them anymore. And then they would come up and just say, Daddy, I love you. Hey, Dad, Daddy, can I talk to you? Dad, can we spend some time together? I want them to see me as their loving Father, their earthly Father. So does God. He, he wants you to know that about him, that he's loving, that he's personal, that he's intimate, that he's close, that he is our father in heaven. Now, a father who is to be respected and obeyed and honored, but a father who is close. And that's a cool thing to think about as we worship God. We don't worship this far-off God. We, we worship a God who, is, who we can call our father. We are a loved child living in the depth of a relationship with a personal God. We are loved dearly. And so Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. And then he says this, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Some of your translations say, may your name be honored as holy. Hallowed be your name. Look, the glory and honor of God should be the first thing that we desire as his kids. Jesus prayed in uh, John 12, 28, Father, Glorify your name. In John 14, 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Church, it's why we're here to make much of God, that his name, right? We sing it, you are worthy of your name. His, his name, it just means all that he is. It's a simple definition. His name is just, just all that he is. And so we worship him, that his name, that he himself would be rightly honored, adored, glorified, worshipped, exalted, put first. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. We come worshiping God. We come in prayer worshiping our God, our Father in heaven. That our desire would be that the whole earth would set apart his name as sacred and holy. That he would be put first. That he would be worshiped alone. May your name be sacred. May your name be lifted high. May all that you are be glorified and worshiped. Read a quote this week that said it well. It says this. I quote, prayer begins and ends with the glory of God, with the building of his kingdom, with the doing of his will, with the elevation of his name. Everything in prayer revolves around who God is and what God wants and how God is to be glorified. The purpose of every prayer we ever offer is that God would be glorified, exalted, honored, and lifted high, end quote. That's it. That is it in a nutshell. And so I want to ask you to write down these two scriptures here. At the end of each of these five subpoints, I'm just going to give you a scripture or two that you can read this week and pray back to God as it relates to each of these five points. And uh, we learned about that a few weeks ago as we talked about praying scripture and the power of that. And so let's look specifically at some of these topics and I'll give you a scripture for each one. And so you can write down uh, Romans 11, 33 to 36. Romans 11, 33 to 36, and Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Okay? So, check those out this week. All right, get real as you pray. Worship him, verse 9, now verse 10. Humble yourself. <clears throat> Humble yourself. Verse 10. He says, verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So check out those uh, th first three words there. Take a look back down at your Bible. Your kingdom come. Whose kingdom? Your, right? Meaning God our Father. Your kingdom come, right? May his name be honored as holy. May his kingdom come. Next four words, your will be done. Whose will? His, right? Your, God, our Father. So may God our Father in heaven, may his name be honored as holy. May his kingdom come. May his will be done. May God's rule and reign be evident in each of our hearts. May, may the purpose, may the plans May the program of God be the preoccupation of our prayer life and all that we are. May, may our Father in heaven, may his name be glorified. May his kingdom come. May his will be done, listen now, on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Here's what he's saying. Bring it here, oh God. Bring it here. In every facet, in every way. May you, our God, our Father in heaven, may your name be glorified and may your kingdom come. May your will be done here on earth. Bring it here, oh God, on earth as it is in heaven. 
I wrote this down. May this world that's in rebellion to you turn from its sin and evil ways, and may your will and your ways, just as it is in heaven, be seen here on this earth, in this place, at this time, now, God. Bring it now. Do it here just as it is in heaven. Do it here, God. Reign in our own hearts, listen now, even as you sit on your throne as a king there in heaven. You reign. Reign in our hearts, God. Bring it here. What an awesome prayer. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth here as it is in heaven. Now, the opposite of that, the wrong way to read that would be, my kingdom come, right? My will be done. So this would be a good time. It was a good reflection for me this week to think back as much as I could the last month of my prayers. How was I praying? Was it about my kingdom or God's kingdom? Was my prayer consumed with my plans or God's plans? Was it about my will or God's will? My desire, his desire. My wants, his wants. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Did did I rush into prayer, right? And so all of us examining our own hearts, did I rush into prayer saying, God, I want, or God, you reign. Your kingdom come. Whose kingdom am I praying for? Whose will do I want to see? Who's the king of my life? God or me? We can take inventory on that. Are we consumed with the kingdom of self or the kingdom of God? How is that evident then in my prayer life? Think of it this way. Um, I guess it's a little silly example, but think of it this way. You're at home tonight, you're sitting on your sofa, and Jesus shows up visibly and sits next to you. Now, um, you begin to talk to him. Now, that, that kind of is prayer, right? God is all present. He's everywhere, and we talk to him, all right? But um, seeing him visibly isn't going to happen tonight. Um, but he, pretend like he is. He's sitting there on the sofa next to you, and you see him visibly. Now, would you... Listen now, would you um, just, just begin to talk to him hoping everybody else in the house kind of hears you speak and you sound really important like the Pharisees? Probably not. W- would you um, just start mindlessly jabbering to God, right? Just, just talk, 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 don't even know really what you're saying, asking him all these things over and over and over again, repeating the same expression, uh, over and over and over and over and over again to Jesus? Probably not, right? Would you, would you sit down next to him and be like, I'm so glad you're here. I got a few things I want to say to you. I, you know, uh, this is kind of what I, what I want. I want you to do this for me. This, this is kind of what I want to see happen. I, this is kind of the will of my own life. I want you to do this, my desire, my wants, my needs, what I want. Bring it to pass, God. You're all powerful. Do what I want. Now, we all sit and go, yeah, silly illustration, and no, we'd never do that. But listen, sometimes, church, we rush into prayer the very same way. Sometimes we rush in, and it's, it is. It's all about us. It's all about what we want to see happen. Jesus says, don't, don't do that. I, I got a different pattern for you. That he, God himself, would be exalted and worshiped, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we would humble ourselves, that he would become greater than I. In all that I say, in all that I think, in all that I do, in all that I pray. 
And look, Jesus doesn't just teach this to his disciples. He is our example. He lives it. Because listen, in the hardest moment of his life, potentially, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? What does he pray? I love this. Matthew 26, 39, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, what's that if it's not your will be done, right? Nevertheless, in the moment of excruciating pain as he thinks about his walk to the cross and his death, nevertheless, oh God, not as I will, but as you will. He is our example. He is our teacher. He lived it out. He is no hypocrite. He walked it. He prayed it. He did it. And so we humble ourselves and we seek to be in submission to God's plans, God's purposes, God's glory. That's verse 9 and 10. So here's one scripture you can write down. Psalm 119, 35 to 37. Psalm 119, 35 to 37. Okay, we got three more here under the subpoints, and these are going to come a touch quicker now because I want to save time at the, at the end to pray. Um, so, get real as you pray. Worship him, humble yourself. Here's C, letter C, bring your needs. Bring your needs. And this is just simply, it says this in verse 11. Um, Give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, so we have God as our Father through faith in Christ. We have God's name being exalted and honored, God's program and plans moving forward. Now we come and ask for God's provision. Right? Do you see how the whole prayer is about God? There's a reason for that. He's God. And so we come and we ask for his provision. And, and so Jesus is instructing his disciples that it is okay to come and ask God to meet your needs. It's okay to do that. And there's a lot we learn here in this verse. It tells us that God is our provider, right? That we can ask for him to meet our needs. It tells us that God um, is a great giver. I mean, he's the greatest giver, right? I mean, God the Father gave his son, his own son. And, and God the Son gave his very life. And so God is the greatest giver. He meets our spiritual need, our greatest need. But he also promises to meet our physical needs as his kids. And so that's why it says, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Look, this should be so comforting. God, God is concerned and he cares about you in all of you, small and great needs and all. He cares about everything that's concerning to you. Everything. He loves you. You're his child now. He's your father in heaven, and he wants to care for you. All-powerful, sovereign God is also intimately personal in my own life. And he cares for me. He cares that I have food to eat. He cares that I have clothes to wear. He cares that I have a place to rest my head. He's our provider, and he promises to provide those three things. You can read later in Matthew 6 that he will. 
And I love what Philippians 4, 19 and 20 says. It says, and my God will supply every need of yours, right? Not every want, but my God will supply every need of yours, Paul says, according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so here's the thing. You can thank God for your past needs met, and you can ask God for present needs, and you can trust God for future ones, right? So it's thank and ask and trust. You can thank him for all those past needs that he's met in your life and ask him for the present needs and trust him for future needs. And as you trust him now, as you ask, as you thank and ask and trust, we need to trust him daily for this. See how it says, give us this day our, what does it say? Daily bread, right? This is, this is one day at a time relying on God. Trusting God to supply my needs one day, one step, one moment at a time. I'm relying on God that he will provide. It was Charles Spurgeon that said, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. I can come as his kid and call out to my Father in heaven. And pray that he would meet my needs. And so maybe you would just write down one thing here in your bulletin. Maybe you identify one need in your life. And you just write that down there in your bulletin under this point and say, God, I'm going to start praying this. I'm going to thank you for the past needs met. I'm going to pray for this one and I'm going to trust you for what's ahead. One step at a time, one day at a time. I'm relying on you, my Lord. Okay, scripture for this point, Psalm 35, 27. Psalm 35, 27. Letter D. Confess your sin, verse 12. Confess your sin, verse 12. Okay, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. As we come to God in prayer, one of the things that Jesus teaches us is that we should come by seeking God's forgiveness for our debts. The idea here is our sin. All right, in Luke 11:4, uh, where Jesus taught this also, he replaces the word debts with sin. All right, so that's the idea. The general idea is, is sin. And debts is a good word because when the New Testament, uh, I was reading this this week, when the New Testament addresses sin, one of the main ways in which sin is described is as a debt. All right, all sins place us in debt to God, which must be paid. Who paid it? Jesus Christ paid it. Jesus Christ paid it on our behalf. And so whether you say, uh, forgive us our debts, or maybe you've heard, forgive us our trespasses, the idea here is, is sin. And so you come to God, we come to God in prayer, confessing our sin and seeking God's forgiveness. My greatest problem is sin. My greatest need is forgiveness. And God provides it. Okay? 
So we come and we confess sin, seeking God's forgiveness. And so this, think about this now, this pattern that we're talking about here. Now we're talking about, man, just humility before God, exposing all that we are that he already sees and coming to him and asking for forgiveness, God. Please forgive me for this and for this. This kind of puts an end to verses 5 to 8, does it not? This kind of puts an end to that pattern of holy prayer where I'm being seen by somebody. Kind of puts an end to that. It kind of puts an end to empty words and phrases. This is coming from the heart, being real, authentic, transparent, and open before a holy God and confessing my sin, seeking God's forgiveness. And so, what do you need to confess to God naturally, right? Maybe you would just in your own mind or even in your bulletin just write down what what sin do you need to confess to God Almighty? <clears throat> and as you think about that or write about that, I want you to write over the top of that 1 John 1, 9. That's the scripture for this one because, listen, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, who God, he, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's nothing that you couldn't come and bring to him today in sincerity of heart and say, God, please forgive me for blank, and that God would not forgive you. If we confess our sins, if we agree with God that it is sin and come before him and ask for forgiveness, he, what, cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Now, you're like, that sounds great. A holy God through Christ will forgive me of my sin. And I know that I'm a sinner in need. Now, who do you need to forgive for sinning against you? We ask for God's forgiveness for our sin while we quickly extend forgiveness to others. Okay, so it says, right, um, and forgive us our debts, what, as we also, also, right, as we also have forgiven our debtors. These go together in the Bible. Forgiven Christians forgive. We forgive others who have sinned against us. We're never more like God than when we forgive. And so we, this is a mark of the Christian life. We forgive. And it's incredibly God-exalting when we extend mercy to others and forgive them of their sin against us, because in it, right, in it is an expression of what we're saying is that, that my gracious, merciful, yet holy God, look at how he's gently and mercifully dealt with me. And so now I come and offer that same forgiveness to you. We who are forgiven by God so much offer forgiveness to others. So verses 14 and 15, if you just drop down, it says, right, like this is after what he's teaching on the Lord's Prayer. He goes right into, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I'm like, wow, that sounds crazy. That sounds... What does that mean, right? So let me just simply say this for time's sake. The condition here 
that he gives us in verses 14 and 15 cannot, um, cannot mean that for, by forgiving others, I somehow uh, earn God's forgiveness unto salvation. It just can't mean that, right? My eternal destiny is not based about how well I forgive other people. I can't earn my justification, right? How do we know that? The Bible tells us that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So what it's saying here then, church, is this. That my fellowship with God is going to be impacted if I choose, what? To have a spirit of unforgiveness and bitterness towards other people. My daily walk and, listen, my prayer life will be damaged with God if I refuse to forgive others who sinned against me, Right? Now, maybe the relationship isn't restored in some way where they've not come and repented, but the idea here is this. God is saying, you, you can't walk around with unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, listen, and at the same time come to me and ask for forgiveness. He's like, that would be hypocritical, that you coming before a holy, perfect God and you want forgiveness for your sins, which I graciously grant you, but then you turn around and not give that same forgiveness to others. So don't, don't do that. Just as God forgives me, I extend forgiveness to others. Now, I know that sin hurts. It is a debt. It is painful. Some sins against us are small. But some sins against us are great. And it really hurts. And so look, I need these words as much as I give them to you. But, but I just wrote this down. Any sin committed against us, no matter how terrible, is small in comparison. It's not small, but it's small, listen now, in comparison to our sins against a holy, perfect, righteous God. And if God has forgiven me of so much, how could I refuse to forgive others in comparison? So I wrote down these three questions that I wanted you to, to wrestle with this week as I've been. And so you could just jot these three questions down. And the first one goes like this. If God uh, forgave you like you forgive others, would you be satisfied with that? If, if God forgave you like you forgive others, would you be satisfied with that? Second question, if God has forgiven you of so much, why would you withhold the same to others? If, if God has forgiven you of so much, as a holy, holy, holy God, why would you withhold the same to others? And here's kind of a church community question now. If everyone at Harvest Bible Chapel Peoria forgave like you do, what kind of a church would we be? If, if everybody here at Harvest Bible Chapel Peoria forgave like you, what kind of a church would we be? And so maybe you just write down there in, in your own mind or on your bulletin, just maybe there's a person you need to forgive, right? Maybe there's someone you just need to surrender that to God. And say, God, I don't want bitterness and anger in my heart anymore. 
And God, I pray that they would repent and come back and the relationship would be restored. But for now, God, I am just laying this with you. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to be bitter. It's hurting me more than it's hurting them. I'm laying it down. Forgive me, God, for I'm forgiving this person. And you could write down Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Matthew 18, 21 to 35 for this point. <clears throat> okay, final letter, letter E. Let's roll right into this. It's this, commit to escaping temptation. Verse 13, commit to escaping temptation. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay, again, so Jesus is giving his disciples a pattern for prayer, right? And, and this, this is in contrast to all the wrong ways in the culture that the disciples have seen prayer. Don't pray like the Pharisees. Don't pray like the pagans. Instead, pray like this. And as a recap, we've got so far, God is our Father through faith in Christ. We pray God's name to be exalted and honored, God's program and plans to be done, God's provision to us as his kids, God to forgive us as we extend that forgiveness to other people. The whole prayer is centered on God. And now we have the final verse, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 12 dealt with past sins to be confessed. Verse 13 deals with future sins to be avoided. It's the best way to look at this. The idea is all about deliverance from future sin. And so when it says, right, first words, and lead us not into temptation. And lead us not into temptation. It's not saying that God will tempt us to sin. Okay, everybody say it's not saying that. Okay, we've got to clarify that. It's not saying that God would tempt us to sin. That would oppose his character. And we know in James 1, 13 and 14 it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Right? God himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And so God does give us trials to grow our spiritual muscles. We see that in James chapter 1 in the beginning. But God tempts no one. He tempts no man to sin, no woman to sin, no child to sin, no person to sin. God does not tempt us to sin. So the verses in Matthew must mean something else. And here's what I believe it means. And this is the right attitude of the Christian. Look, here it is, church. It's the heartfelt cry of the believer who knows their weakness. They know that they are weak. It's the Christian that knows that he or she, right? We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. We know that we can be tempted to sin. We know our own desire, our own flesh can lure us away. And our flesh can be enticed also by the enemy to sin. And so this really is, is kind of a prayer that goes like this. God, I don't trust myself. I know that I can be tempted to fall into sin, and I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to fall. I know I'm weak, so keep me from and deliver me from evil. Lead me not into any place that would tempt me and deliver me from the evil of this broken world that's always swirling about me, enticing my own flesh. I don't want to sin against you. Help me, God. Help me. I'll give you an illustration. Hopefully clear this up as we kind of close here. My son Josh is three years old, and uh, Josh goes to bed right around 7 o'clock. Um, I have two girls who are six and eight years old, and they get to stay up for about an extra hour. And so while Josh goes in and gets, you know, story time and all that, uh, the girls, I'll give them like goldfish or animal crackers or something to eat for, 
you know, an hour as they hang out with each other. Um, but here's the thing. If between seven and eight, if Josh, for any reason, comes out of his room, his whole world ends, right? He loses his mind, right? He'll come walking down the hallway and say, hey, I want a snack. I don't want food. Why do they, I want to eat. Why do they get to eat? I'm not listening to you, Dad. Forget it. I want food. I want it now, right? And so he just, he just can't handle it. Loses his mind. He was fine in his room. But the situation has exposed his own heart. And he'd do whatever he, he can to get what he wants. Now listen, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 13 is equivalent of saying, God, don't let me come out of my room and see the snacks. <laughs> don't let me come out and see. I just can't handle it, God. I can't take it. I'm going to lose my mind. Don't let me go into any situation, oh God, that I know I would be tempted, that I might be drawn into sin because I want to honor you. Look, my heart is willing. My flesh is weak. Matthew 26, and so Jesus said, "What? watch and pray that you would not enter into temptation. Lead me not into temptation, O God. Deliver me from evil. Are you committed to escaping temptation? And here's some verses to aid you in that. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. It's the armor of God. Just write that down. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. And after you do, I just want to invite you now to bow your head.